If someone throws a fit when you set a boundary, it's just more evidence that the boundary is needed. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and I am a shit show. So today, we are joined by Barb Nangle, who is a fellow recovering adult child and shit show, and she's also a boundaries coach. Andrea, are you speaking a foreign language? What is this word called boundaries? I know it is also the first time I'm hearing it as well, but I guess a boundary is something that one sets, and apparently it's something that adult children have a hard time setting. So we're going to be getting into boundaries. Well, first we're going to get into Barb's story. It's just a nice chat between two fellow travelers. You know, my favorite thing that she says in the interview is she makes a comment or she says this, shares this comment that was made to her by by two gentlemen who were both in AA and ACA. And essentially what they told her was that, you know, in AA, in the steps, it doesn't say that you have to stop drinking, but you can't recover unless you stop drinking. And in ACA, it doesn't say in the steps that you have to set healthy boundaries, but in order to recover, you must learn how to set healthy boundaries. And, you know, I often talk about how this adult child recovery process is about discovering our true selves. And boundaries are a way that we do this because boundaries are limits that help us define the self. You know, they create the distinction of this is me and that is you. And unfortunately, most of us have a real hard time setting boundaries because we were not taught healthy boundaries growing up, whether they were non-existent or perhaps they were too rigid. Our boundaries were typically violated in some form. Generally speaking, when we're talking about childhood abuse, neglect, trauma, there is some type of boundary violation that is going on there. So I was reading this article by Ariel Schwartz, who wrote the uh, Complex PTSD Workbook, And she talks about that there's these three common boundary violations that occur in early childhood or three common patterns, invasion, abandonment, or a combination of the two. So I wanted to read this to you. So invasion, an invasion boundary violation is the result of a caregiver who has consistently misread your signals for disconnection. The parent may simply not recognize your need for separation or a parent might be using connection with you to soothe his or her own need to feel loved. Invasion can also be the result of abusive situations. If you felt invaded as a child, you might have a tendency to withdraw from relationships by developing a rigid boundary style. Maybe you have constructed walls around your most vulnerable feelings. When boundaries are too rigid, you can become isolated or carry a belief that you always have to take care of things yourself. So next we have abandonment. So an abandonment boundary violation is the result of a caregiver who is not responsive to your signals for connection. As a result, you learn to override your own natural rhythms of connection and disconnection, a survival instinct that propels you to seek connection at any cost. 
The impact of abandonment is that you learn to have a less defined boundary style so as to adapt to the needs of others. If you don't have this unbounded boundary style, you may feel hesitant to set limits with others for fear of rejection. Finally, a combination of the two, so invasion and abandonment. A combined injury is the result of a caregiver who is inconsistently alternating between being invasive and unresponsive. As a result, it is difficult to find a reliable strategy to meet your needs for both connection and disconnection. This third and most common boundary injury can lead you to alternate between longing for connection and your desire to push people away when they get too close in a way that feels unsatisfying or disorganized. So when I think about the boundary violations that I endured as a child, I think it mostly came in the form of parentification. So I specifically think about my relationship with my dad. So there was invasion going on when he was using me as his emotional confidant and as his support uh, related to my, my mother's drinking when he was having me search the house for booze with him. But then simultaneously, there was abandonment, right? Because then he would abandon me. He would go out of town for work and leave me at home with my drunk mom. Um, so same thing goes with my mom too. You know, she was, she was such a wonderful mother when she was not drinking, but then there was a boundary violation when she was, was drunk, right? Because I had to step into the role of, um, of caretaker. And so that is, that's violating the boundary of parent and child. So I've had to learn how to set boundaries and it's not, it's been hard. It's been a process that my therapist has helped me with tremendously, and I would say it comes to me a lot more naturally. I don't feel as much guilt or fear or anxiety when I set these boundaries now. So really what it is 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 figuring out what feels good for me, and I, I do find that, and as we're going to talk about in my conversation with Barb, you know, as I've developed the relationship with myself, as I feel more comfortable in myself, as I figure out who the fuck I am, it's gotten a whole hell of a lot easier to set boundaries and it's felt a lot more comfortable to set boundaries. So that is my two cents for today. Next week, you are gonna just get me. I'm saying this right now so that I can't back out of doing this. Next week, I am going to do a solo episode on money our relationship with money, money disorders. And so this is my way of hold me accountable, guys. If I if I don't do a solo episode next week on money, you better kick my ass. <laughs> um a few quick announcements. So I am pleased to announce the next workshop that we are having and it is going to be with a former guest, Saskia Lightstar, the Hay House published author of The Cancer Misfit. So this is going to be on July 10th. It's going to be at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, and it is titled How to Quiet the Inner Critic. And so here's a little blurb that she sent over to me. So this is written in Saskia's point of view. So just imagine it's in the first person of Saskia. So just for a second, imagine that I'm Saskia with British accent. So, How to Quiet the Inner Critic, a workshop crammed full of hands-on tools to turn down the volume on the self-judgment, inner critic, 
critical parent, or whatever else you want to call it. My methods are somewhat strange and quirky, but they work. So get ready to step out of your comfort zone and have some fun while telling your inner critic to shut the fuck up. Oh, I love it. (laughs) If you're serious about healing, then join me on Sunday the 10th of July and bring your sense of humor and courage with you. Well, hell yeah. So I will be opening this up to the Patreon folks in the next few days, and then I will be opening up this to um, everybody else. So it'll be 20 bucks for Patreon members and 30 bucks for non-Patreon members, and it will be an hour and a half to two hours. And I'm really fucking excited to do this. Saskia is is awesome. Next, join the damn Patreon. This is where I host three weekly support groups on Zoom. It is where all the cool kids hang out. It's also where you say, hey, thanks, Andrea, for all that you do. I really appreciate listening to you every week. So I want to give a shout out to our newest Patreons, the shittiest of the shit shows. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Seth, Allison, Nick, Sue, Jen, Karen, Sam, Brianna, uh, Fiona, Amy, Alicia, Niece, Taylor, Nick, and Brian. You guys, the groups have been so damn good lately. I must say they have been feeding my soul. Um, and of course, follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod. I'm like a couple people away from 5,000. So can you help a girl out and give me the old little follow on the on the old Instagram. And of course, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. That's what we do here. If you've not done so, don't continue listening until you do so. Thank you so much. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. All right, y'all. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce a a fellow traveler, a fellow shit show, <laughs> uh, a fellow gal who likes to say fuck, um, and yes, of um, higher power coaching and consulting, Miss Barb Nangle. Hi. Hey. So I actually do not think of myself as a shit show anymore. Well, I'm calling you. Sorry. I was a shit show. Do Time not for that to up. change. Yeah. I just, we're going to gonna bring it out in you. Okay. <laughs> we're going to make you one, even if you never but, been one. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I was a shit show, but I had no fucking idea that I was a shit show. And I acted like everybody else was the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure no one can relate to that. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. So you just shared before we stopped, started recording that you just finished a 20 week um, ACA step study, and that this was the fourth time that you had gone through the steps. I'm curious if you can reflect upon the big, and maybe you can't remember for two or three, but if you could, it'd be great. But what do you feel like the big takeaways were 
from, from each time that you work the steps and maybe in particular this time, like, what did you learn? What did, what new did you learn about yourself or, you know, what, what came up this time that hadn't come up in previous times? Um, so this time it was much smaller things and I wish I had my book in front of me. I don't, um, cause I, I took notes on, I'm having trouble accessing it, but there were a few things, um, here and there nothing gigantic. I will say that the third time that I did them was more profound than the second time that I did them. Specifically when I was doing step five, I w- I had a friend of mine because so the first time I did the steps was with a small group and it took us over two years. This The second, third, and fourth time I facilitated a 20-week step study and I did the steps with the group. But the first two times were before the pandemic in person. So time number three, I had a close friend of mine from ACA listen to my fifth step. Do you want to explain just in case some people aren't familiar with the fourth and fifth steps are? Sure. Yeah. So the fourth step is take a searching and fearless moral inventory of our lives. And what I like to say that with the difference between the fourth step in ACA and other programs, at least in my experience, is in other programs, step four is what you did. Step four in ACA is what happened to you. You can still get at what you did by way of what happened to you. And so the best way to illustrate that in my life was what happened to me was I grew up in a family that engaged in indirect communication. So this was a communication pattern laid down before I was born. No hope of growing up in that family, knowing how to directly communicate. (laughs) So what I did was gossip, Mm -hmm. right? So my defect of character was gossip, but I feel blessed that I learned that in ACA before doing the recovery in another program, because I think in that program, I would have been just riddled with guilt and shame. Mm. So in any case, step four, searching and riddle regarding the gossip part or what? Well, any, any of the defects of character, but I think if I had found out that I was a gossip, I would have been like, Oh my God, I'm a piece of shit rather than, Mm -hmm. Oh, this came from somewhere. Cause in ACA, we're very clear. You are a product of your environment. Whereas in my other recovery program, you're not allowed to look at your environment. You are only allowed to look at your own behavior. And I get that that's important, but for me as a traumatized person, not cool, you know? So step four, searching for those moral inventory is where we come up with our defects of character. And step five, we share these with another person, our higher power and ourselves. And it's important to just be honest about who we are and what happened to us and all that. So I'm sharing this with my friend And I'm talking about something I did to my little brother when I was probably 12 or 13. And I am fucking sobbing. I'm on the floor sobbing. And my friend is standing over me and she points down at me and she says to me, Barb, God loves you. God loves you no more and no less. And I was like, holy fucking shit. It was literally like I was a gaping Mm -hmm. wound and she poured the love of God into that gaping wound. And I cannot tell you the level of healing that I got from that experience. I mean, that was just utterly profound. And that was the third time. Was that something that had come up on previous inventories? It had, but it just, the, the, the way that I I didn't sob like that, the person I shared it with, I mean, it just was, it just, you know, I, I feel like stuff comes up when our psyche is ready for us to deal with it. Yeah. You know, no control over it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Mm, That's amazing. What's the first time that you 
So the first time, the first time you ever did the 12 steps was through ACA, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what was that first experience like? Oh, fucking brutal. Let me tell you something. I hit, I hit bottom with the sugar while doing the ACA fourth step. So tell me about how you learned that you were an adult child. Um, well, first I learned that I was codependent and I went to CODA and I, about a couple of weeks into that, I said to somebody, I think I need to be reparented, but I thought I made that up. I didn't know that was a thing. Right. So six weeks into my CODA recovery, I go to visit a friend on Cape Cod who's a longtime AA person. She's always just raved about AA. So I'm telling her about my CODA experience. And she was like, oh, let me see if I can find a meeting. I'll take you. Well, she couldn't, but she found an ACA experience uh, meeting. And I'm like, I don't identify as a child of an alcoholic. I never heard the and dysfunctional families part. So I was like, I'll go for you because her dad's an alcoholic. I walk in. A, they go, we reparent ourselves. I was like, what? And B, they read the laundry list. And I'm like, oh my fucking God. And she tells me, I sobbed the whole meeting. I don't remember that. But I came home to New Haven. Oh, I bought the big red book. I bought the yellow workbook. Came home to New Haven, Connecticut and started coming to meetings. And I started reading the big red book by myself. And I'm reading it. I'm like, oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is what happened. Oh my God. This is what happened. I didn't know something quote happened to me. But I was like, oh my God, this explains everything. Yeah. So I think it was walking into the room that taught me that I was an adult child. You know, what a divinely inspired moment that there were no CODA meetings. Yeah. yeah. I've been to a couple of CODA meetings. I was not, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I went for a year and I stopped going because for me personally, it wasn't getting at the stuff the way that AC, the way I think of it is for me, it was maybe like a 75% fit, ACA 100% fit. And I also felt like at least the meetings I went to, there was not a focus on the solution. Whereas in ACA, you know, if you're reading the literature, the focus is on the solution, you know? Yeah. I found in CODA, it was like people were raising, like, does anyone available to be a sponsor? Nobody. Yeah. Cause they're all fucking codependents and they're used to saying yes to everything. So I almost feel like sometimes that mm-hmm. is used as a crutch. Mm-hmm. Like I, I always do everything for everyone. Yeah. But I think that's true in ACA too. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's totally true in ACA. And that's one of the reasons why we don't like, it's not just sponsors. Yes. Through the steps is the way that you recover. There's a lot of ways to recover in ACA. I'll be honest, before I read the section that talks about why they do like the fellow travelers group, I, I, I just thought it was like resistance and bullshit. Like it was like a way for people like, like, what is this fellow travelers bullshit? Like get a fucking sponsor. And I thought it was just people just didn't want to like fully dip in the pond, but I understand it now. And it, you know, it just talks about how a sponsor could be seen as more of like a parental figure and um, that can be triggering to people. Um, But I also people in uh, recovery have been traumatized by sponsors and other programs. I mean, let's get real. There are some fucked up sponsors out there who abuse their authority. And so if you're an ACA and you're coming in from another program and you've had that, you're like, Oh, I'm not doing it. You know? And this is why. So I was on a literature committee for ACA that was originally called the sponsorship task force and because there's so much debate about like what's the right thing to do and and there's a new piece of literature coming out called connections 
And the main message in that piece is there's no one right way to do recovery in ACA. So if you need a sponsor, fine, get one. If you need to do fellow traveler, fine, do that. If you want to be in a step study group, fine, do that. You know, like whatever, what, the, the only wrong way to do recovery in ACA is alone. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds miserable. Don't even try. Just keep, I, no. doing, keep living in the traits, baby. <laughs> yeah, when I when I told you when I got I bought the big red book and the yellow workbook, I came home to New Haven and it was a Wednesday night meeting and I couldn't go for two weeks. So in those two weeks, I started reading the big red book and started doing the workbook by myself. I think it's okay to read the book by yourself. Re- I re- yeah, yeah, okay, but you need to do some processing with people, mm-hmm. you know, and definitely the step workbook. No, do not do that alone. I agree. I um, I've only had one. I'm trying to think of bad experiences with sponsors that I had my very first sponsor. She used to, this is an AA. She used to make me like babysit her kids and she wouldn't pay me. And she told me that it was because she just was trying what? to occupy okay, my time. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> that is abuse. Um, yeah. and then the only other thing that happened, um, and I forgive her. I, I don't think she listens. She might, but if she is listening, please know that I don't hold any grudges. Um, but so I went out of town uh, for a couple of days and she, uh, <clears throat> this was actually, this was like, she was my sponsor when I was dating Brian number one and during that breakup. And she was so helpful to me and she would come and stay at my apartment with me. Like I was just such a mess. And um, so it's a few months later, I go out of town um, for a couple of days to Seattle and she would take care of my cat when I was out of town, but I was only going to be gone for two nights. So I didn't need her to, to do it. So I'm like headed home. I'm at the Seattle airport on my way home. I just shoot her a text like, Hey, I'm on my way home. Like I had a great trip. And then she says, she was like, Oh, that's great. She was like, um, I didn't want to worry you yesterday, but I, she had a key to my, she had a key to my apartment. I went by your apartment yesterday to check on Kiki. And I wanted to know, did you turn the power off before you left? And I was like, well, first of all, like that is something that I, well, first of all, no. <laughs> and second of all, like that is something that I would like to know. Like if the power is off, like maybe I can handle that like while I'm away rather than mm-hmm. figuring it out now. And, um, and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't mind that she, she's, she was welcome there. It was just, I don't know. It was weird. So I get home, my power's out. Thankfully, it was just like a circuit breaker. I go down to the garage. I fix it. I come back into my apartment and I walk into the bathroom and there was a used condom wrapped on my sink. Oh my fucking God. Yeah. And so at the time she was going through divorce and she was dating this guy who I met who was welcome to when I had gone out for a long period of time, he was welcome to stay here at my place as well. Yeah, yeah. But neither one of them had their own place. And, um, and so then I called her, you know, I ended up saying something to her. What really hurt me was that she was trying to make it seem like she was just stopping by to see my cat. And I just happened to drop a, and then she just, and then this guy just happened to just magically also, cause here's the thing too. Like she doesn't have to she she's welcome here. It was, it was just that she had lied. 
um, and was making it seem like she also, was leaving a fucking about- condom. That's disgusting. Like clean no up. No kidding. That. Well, I was thinking about that. Like when I, even when I was like in blackouts as a teenager, whenever I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, I mean, I would go back over places and just make sure that I was, there was no trace that I had been right. anywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was shitty. And it was people are like, Oh my God, I can't imagine that trust violation from a sponsor. Honestly, it wasn't so much. She had become a dear friend. Mm-hmm. And so it was more so like that a friend would do that to me. That was, was yeah. really hurtful. So mm-hmm. that's only my shitty. Do you have any good ones? Um, I, so I'm in a eating program and my second sponsor relapsed and the thing was everybody knew that he was my sponsor and everybody knew him. So I didn't feel like I could talk about it in that recovery program. Um, but what happened was somebody saw him at a convention and they, he had gained a shitload of weight. And, and cause I didn't see, I only talked to him on the phone because he lived in another state and she called me and she was like, listen, I have been praying about this and I don't want to gossip, but I saw this dude and he looked like he gained 50 pounds. And I'm like, Oh fuck. So when I called him, I reached out to a friend from AA and I was like, please help me through this. And actually this thing taught me a lot about boundaries. As a matter of fact, this particular scenario. And she said to me, all you say to him is the truth. You say, somebody called me. They told me they saw you at the convention. You look like you gained 50 pounds. Zip it. Then just don't talk and see what he says. And he fumbled through it and said, oh, you know, I thought I told you I had gained some weight. And I'm like, no, no, you didn't. And um, he, it was just, it was just shattering to me he was he I was doing a big book study with him this guy like knew the big book like fucking nobody right like Mr um you know Joe and Charlie and he has like a he owns like a thousand CDs and you know every version of the big book and all this stuff and I'm like listening to this man like basically try to lie to me and that was really really painful but it what I wouldn't call that an abuse of you know power like that but it was still exceedingly painful that he couldn't just come right out and and tell me the truth but I get it I mean when you're an addict you lie that's what you fucking do especially when you're in the food or the drug or the alcohol or whatever you know I get it but it was really painful and I learned a lesson from that like I could I didn't feel like I could talk about that in that program because everybody knew who he was Mm -hmm. so I had to go to my other program and talk about the situation so as not to be like gossiping, but like, I have all these feelings I need to process about, and like people that are not food addicts can't understand what it's like to have your food addict sponsor relapse, you know, and then lie to you about it. So what, what, how did the relationship end or Um, well, I, um, a friend of mine suggested that maybe I could get another sponsor that could be my sponsor, but then he could continue to do the steps, the the big book study with me. And he agreed and we would do it every other week, but then he couldn't do it. He was like, he was depressed, which is his reason for why he went back into the food. And he just said, emotionally, I just don't have what it takes. And so he just sort of faded away. And I just, I've, I've, um, sent him do you know what happened to him no I mean yeah I do I know that he like gained a shit ton of weight back and some people went knocking on his door and he was like oh I'll come back when I lose the weight which is ridiculous that's like saying in AA I'll come back when I'm sober you know you know yeah that food stuff's got to be tough what have you I mean because you have to eat I mean I guess it's the same thing we have to be in relationships but Yeah. yeah so let's talk about your childhood Okay. So, um, 
I've just in the last few weeks realized that my grandmother being orphaned Mm. was abandonment and my great grandfather on the other side was raised by some guy who we don't know who it was that was some kind of abandonment I never knew that before I mean okay I knew these things happened but it never registered to me as that's generational abandonment Mm -hmm. um Mm. my father um his father was an alcoholic his mother the story was that she was a hypochondriac she was the one that was orphaned my father was a workaholic heavy drinker womanizer my mom quintessential codependent when i was a kid we called her the enabler codependent wasn't a word back then we called her the enabler we literally had an opium den in our basement we didn't do opium but we smoked a lot of weed and drank a lot she said to me when i was 14 years old i would rather have you smoking weed in my house where i know where you are than out in the streets and we were like yes so when i was a kid i was like this is awesome and when I was growing oh, up, yeah. we had like the Kool-Aid house when I was little and just, it just mm-hmm. transformed to when I was a teenager, it turned into like, even if we all went out, we'd all get together at my house, smoke a few bowls, drink a few beers, and then go out, you know, drinking and driving and stuff like that. And my mother just condoned it. She never used, she, I mean, I think she maybe had two glasses of wine ever that I ever uh-huh. saw, but she was super fucking codependent. Um, my older brother, who's 18, 19, 17 months older than me, he is a dry drunk. He's an alcoholic. He, he was one of those super fucking sloppy, spittle, bleh, alcoholic. <laughs> and he, when he was 24, he got into a junk driving accident, should have died, didn't, went into rehab, got sober, mm. um, and went to AA for like two years. Always, he was a staunch atheist his whole life. And for like, I don't know, maybe three months, he believed in God there. And then he, he left and he was like, fuck that. And um, he's been sober, except for one time he drank when, to spite his wife, because she got pregnant with another dude while she was married to my brother. And so he got drunk and then he realized, oh, I, I'm not that guy anymore. And I just did that to spite her. That was about 15 years ago. So he's 60 now and he is, he's an untreated adult child and he is a, he's a dry drunk and he, so he has a job, but he let go of his cell phone years ago. He stopped doing email. And then my, one of his kids told me, his kids are adults, told me a couple months ago that last summer his phone got knocked out in a storm and he hasn't repaired it. So in other words, his retreat from the world has gotten worse and worse and worse. Do you have to sound like a carrier pigeon? <laughs> well, I remember when he said to me, if you want to talk to me, fucking call me on the phone. And I wanted to say, you sure you don't want me to send you a telegram? You know, yeah. like postcard. And then my younger brother, Pat, who was eight years younger than me, he died at 35 of Legionnaire's disease. He was bipolar, mm-hmm. but that he was dual diagnosis. So his main drug of choice was marijuana, but he did many other drugs. Um, he had a psychotic break when he was 20 mm-hmm. um, and um, was in and out of the hospital many times, severely debilitated by his bipolar disorder, a couple of attempts of suicide, um, really just didn't want to live. So when he died, like for him, a blessing, it sucked ass, you know, for me, um, but I was clear that it was good for him. And then um, interestingly, one time, probably the year or two before he died, he and I were taking a walk in the woods one day. And he stopped suddenly, turned around and said to me, Barb, 
I don't know what it is, but I have this sense of shame that is so fucking profound. It cannot possibly be from this lifetime. Mm. I'm going to do past life regression. Well, he never did. But fast forward to me getting into ACA. I'm like, oh, this is where the shame came from. He was right. It wasn't from his lifetime. It was from the generations before. So it wasn't necessarily his past life. Mm-hmm. but it was the past lives of those that went before. So one of the things I did as part of my healing journey was I bought copies of the big red book and I wrote in the front of them, this is for my brother, Pat, that shame wasn't yours. And I learned that here in this book and I donated books to the library and the hometown I grew up in my father's hometown, my mother's hometown and the town that my father was, my father was still alive at the time and the, the library in that town. Um, as a way, like in my mind, it's like a way of like taking the poison out of the roots and, and putting medicine in or something like that, because I finally understood what the hell he was talking about when he was like, I have this sense of shame that is so deep and profound and I, there's nothing I've ever done in my life that warrants it. And, you know, ACA tells me, oh, that's that bundle of shame. And all the other crappy stuff that gets, I think of it as almost like poured down into us from the generations before us because they don't want it. So they're like, I'm giving it to you, you know? So basically what you're saying is that your family was the picture of um, mental wellness. (laughs) Basically. What's really funny (laughs) is when I got into ACA I didn't get it. I didn't get why I was here. I knew I had the traits, but I was like, I didn't get the shit kicked out of me. I didn't get my bones broken. I didn't get raped. I didn't get burned. Mm -hmm. I didn't get down the stairs, but I have the traits. And it wasn't until I came to understand the relational trauma, Mm -hmm. you know, that the, the emotional invalidation, the, uh, gaslighting, um, the, you know, I, I call it like the drip, drip, drip of emotional invalidation and, just mm-hmm. not really feeling like I remember when I was in my thirties, when my younger brother said to me something about mom is not in touch with her emotions. And I was like, really? And the more I thought about it, I'm like, you're right. She's not like, I needed to be told that in my thirties. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit, you're right. She's so not you know? And, um, so like you, I always had food on the table. I lived in a house. I I was physically safe. Most of the time, you know, my dad, a couple of times when I was in my late teens, tried to strangle me, which was so fucking shocking to me because it was just not, it's it wasn't the pattern, you know, at least that I could remember. But, um, I, I, and I also, when I got in recovery, I looked on the outside, like I had my shit together. Like I have a master's degree. I own a home. I pay my taxes. I volunteered all this stuff. Meanwhile, you know, I have this gigantically long string of dysfunctional relationships behind me romantic. I didn't know also my friendships, my colleague relationships were dysfunctional too. I knew that about my about my, and I was also carrying around over a hundred pounds of extra weight. And I had, I, by then I wasn't drinking. 
uh, I drank abusively until I was like in my early forties and I just sort of stopped. Um, but by then I was well into the food. I also smoked weed for a long time. I mean, I smoked a ton of weed in my life and I smoked for a long time. Um, but I just didn't have any idea how fucked up I was or how fucked up my family was. I just didn't get it. I just didn't. And was it like a slow burn or was it like all of a sudden the bandaid was ripped off and you were like, holy fucking shit. It's hard to remember. I remember, like I said, I was reading, like I'm literally reading the bigger book going, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. So I think it was probably bandaid being ripped off, mm-hmm. but then, then a long, slow burn for a long time, you know, too, because when you do step four, and you do those 12 different inventories in step four. And you're like, oh, let's do the shame inventory. And let's do the abandonment inventory and the denial inventory. It's like, oh my God, holy shit. You know, so there was a Band-Aid, but then there was slow burn and a bunch of more Band-Aids, you know. <laughs> a bunch of more Band-Aids. Yeah. Um, what role did you play in your home growing up? You know, I went as an adult, I was the hero. I don't think I was any of them as a kid. I don't, I don't, I can't, every time I read them, I'm like, ah, I don't know. As an adult, definitely, definitely hero as an adult, but in my family too, but not as a kid. So when you heard the laundry list for the first time, what trait was like the biggest slap in the face? We'll do anything to hold on to a relationship. Mm -hmm. And you know, what's funny when I heard the laundry list, Mm -hmm. I thought I had seven traits. I have 13 of them. That's called denial, people. <laughs> yeah. I was in I denial. Maybe I'm yeah. in denial because I don't think, I think I maybe have seven or so. Yeah. No, maybe I'm in denial. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I feel like I had 13 of them. Some of them have been pretty well healed. Some of them, you know, I still, like, I would say for me, the most difficult one is addiction to excitement. Fuck yeah. That's so, why I'm watching the fucking Johnny Depp case 24. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that, but I heard somebody, I was talking to a fellow traveler the other day and they're like, Oh, those are two fucking adult children. It's literally like, why it is adult. Eat? It is so good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so into it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go into withdrawals now that it's over. Um, yeah. Addicted to excitement too. How yeah, does that manifest for you still? Um, in my brain, like I want to do 50 million things all the time. And I, um, and I do, I'm a, I'm a busy person and I like to be a busy person and I get a lot of shit done, but relaxing, just sitting, like, I will be like, pick up my phone, blah, 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 you know, play a game or scroll on Instagram or something like, like just luckily for me, I meditate for 15 minutes twice a day. Thank God. And I also do lots of conscious contact and I do yoga and stuff like that. Cause I really need to do that. But I remember in 2017, I went to the ACA convention and I went to a workshop called addiction to excitement. And the two women that led it made a very strong case that that is the addiction from which we need to abstain in this program, because you can literally, they called it layering. You can like shame yourself right in front of people. And they don't even know that you're doing it. And so you're getting this flood of adrenaline and cortisol, and you can do it like And like, oh, you wait to pay your taxes until the very last second, or you drive your car until it's just on empty, like things like that, because we're so used to living with the, you know, the fight or flight mode. That's fear. Yeah. Yeah. All that shit. Yeah. Just the 
producing the unmanageability. Right. Because yeah. we think that's, well, it is normal to us. You know, like I have a very high tolerance for dysfunction. Now I understand just because my tolerance for dysfunction is high doesn't mean I have to like live up to that. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting for me is like, I definitely and still struggle with some of those things, you know, like everything that you just said, but, um, I grew up in a home where it, it was, it was not that way. Like it was hyper, hyper, hyper responsible. Okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I was hyper responsible. Well, I don't know if I was as a kid, I really don't think I was, I think something happened as an adult where I, I remember like the first time I moved out, well, I moved out. I lived with a boyfriend. He left. My brother moved in for a little while. That's when he was like hitting bottom with the drinking. I was like, get the fuck out. If I'm going to be paying the rent by myself, I'm going to live by myself. And I remember when I, for the first time lived by myself, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm like, I literally own every crack and crevice in this apartment. I'm like, if I have to eat fucking ramen noodles and tuna fish sandwiches for the rest of my life to live alone like this and be 100% responsible for me, I'm doing it. And I think that's when the, when I went into hyper, um, responsibility mode, like super responsible mode. I wish I had, <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, especially like with money stuff. So, I mean, my parents, it was like down to the penny, you know, like my mom had to balance the books down to the penny. There would be arguments if it was yeah. just like a few dollars off. Uh, so this, everything was on a budget, but you know, I, in turn, in my adult child disease became very financially irresponsible. Well, I've had my bouts with financial stuff too. So when I was in my early twenties, I went to a mall with a friend and grabbed uh, credit card uh-huh. uh, applications from all the stores, applied to the mall, got them all. Didn't, I did not understand how, how it uh, works. <laughs> what do you call um, compound interest? Didn't understand it. So I eventually paid all of them off. Then I did it again. I racked up my, and then when my student loans came due, I declared bankruptcy. And I will tell you, Andrea, every fucking financial problem I've ever had in my entire life has to do with codependence. Either I was trying to manage my image with people, giving a shit what they thought about me, not what I thought of me, or rescuing people. Mm. You know, so now that I've cleaned up the codependence, I am in the best financial position I've ever been in in my life. You know, and when I hit when I hit codependent bottom with my homeless friend that was staying at my house for two months, I didn't even balance my checkbook because I didn't want to look at it. And, and that was one of the behavior <laughs> that when I so I declared bankruptcy in 99 when my student loans came due. By 2008, I bought a home. So obviously I transformed my life financially. And one of the things I did was I have to balance my checking account every single month. And I always did. But for the the last two months when he was around, I get into that (laughs) because I was so afraid to look on paper because I was driving him places. I was buying him food. I was Mm. buying him cigarettes. Um, I was because he was homeless, he wanted, like, he was like friends with homeless people. So I was like giving out a dollar here and a dollar there. And I had to actually do like the reparenting thing. I don't think I knew that's what it was yet. Um, when I finally went to look at those statements and, and balance the account. Yeah. <laughs> I love this. When I hit my codependency bottom with the homeless guy, yeah. <laughs> so, so- can you please have that be the title of your book? 
<laughs> Please write a memoir called When I Hit My Codependency Bottom with the Homeless Guy. Yeah. Do you want me to back up a little bit and yes. share what happened there? Okay. So, so I started, I volunteered for this project at my church serving homeless people <laughs> right around the same time. This homeless guy named Dan started coming to the church as a, like a parishioner and we became really friendly. And I was like, oh, this is perfect. Divine timing. You know, God is bringing a homeless person for me to meet as a friend so that when I start this project, I'm not serving like the homeless. They're like people to me. Right. So boyfriend. Um, a few weeks later, <laughs> during a snowstorm, I invited him to stay at my home and he did. And then he stayed another time and then another time. And then four months later, he was practically living at my house mm-hmm. and he, <laughs> I, he was a, an addict and an alcoholic. He wasn't actively drinking at the time. Um, but I think he was also a narcissist and he fucked with my head. Like you would not believe. And I remember for me, Dan, the man was, <laughs> it was on the floor in my basement. I had actually moved from my apartment into back into my condo. Cause I, I was, had been renting it out to other people. I moved into my condo and I was on the floor and I now know that it was a trauma response. I didn't know that at the time. And I said to him, we, he was doing something to fuck with my head. And I, I said to him, I'm having a flashback and I meant an emotional flashback. And he thought I meant a drug flashback. I've never taken any kind of drug that would give me a flashback, but he leapt into like rescue mode, which was amazing to see him actually do something. Cause he didn't do shit. <laughs> like he was the laziest motherfucker I have ever met in my entire life. And of course I let that, I just let it happen. But then I bitched about him behind his back. But he was like, you know, what are you seeing? What are you tasting? What are you hearing? And it turns out like that, like getting in touch with your senses is really good to get you out of whatever kind of flashback you're having, whether it's drug or, you know, emotional or whatever. Now I know that I was having a trauma response, but I didn't know that. Then. It took me years actually to realize that, the, oh, that's what that was, you know? So um, I ended up, um getting him to leave. I gave him some money. He said it was too much. And then I ended up actually bringing him. I live on the New Haven Harbor. I brought him over to the other side to the beach in West Haven. And then I was told by someone else that he was going to come back to my house. And I went and stayed at someone else's house for a couple nights, just so that I wouldn't be here. Cause I knew that if he knocked on the door, I would not let him in. Yeah. You know, and then he just never um, came back. And then there was a couple times he actually came to the church and one time I like, I texted my spot, my, uh, my therapist and, um, I, I couldn't reach her. And I was, it was literally just this, it was a trauma response. And then a few weeks later, after just a few weeks in ACA, I remember I was greeting at the door and I knew I somehow knew he was going to be there. And he walked up the stairs and I did, I didn't have the reaction. Something wow. happened to me and it was very clear. Like I exuded it. Well, I would call it a boundary now. I didn't know that then. And I don't even know how I did it, but he didn't penetrate me the way that he did before. And he knew it. He mm-hmm. could see mm-hmm. that I was different. And I never saw him again after that. Man, I wish you like the story would have been so much better if like you had gotten married and had a couple kids. <laughs> <laughs> Or if you had like a slew of homeless guys that you let move in. 
Yeah, no, no. And I, you know what I wonder now, it, I've just in the last like three weeks allowed myself to start thinking about this. I've never even entertained this before. If that was my bottom and I hadn't gotten in recovery, what the fuck would I do? <laughs> you would have been living on the street and Dan would have been living in your damn house. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you know, and I'd be like 550 pounds and probably mm-hmm. dead. I don't know. I mean, who knows? Hey, Dan, if you're listening like, right now, I'd like to have you on as a guest to rebut he this died. story. <laughs> oh, he died. He died. Yeah. So let's talk about how the hell you got to Dan. <laughs> what do you mean? Like the slew of other codependent relationships. What so, do you? Yeah. So my romantic relationships were always codependent. I thought that my pattern was emotionally unavailable people. And it was, but it turns out really the real a pattern was codependence. And also it turns out the reason that I attracted emotionally unavailable people was because I was emotionally unavailable. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that because, you know, I didn't know my part in anything. Um, but I also had codependent friendships. So I had, when I was in my teens, uh, one of my friends dubbed it my under the wing syndrome. So I had two different friends, both for periods of time where I just sort of like took care of them, you know, and my mom, even like a couple of friends, she let our friends move into our house, you know? And, um, but my main, main codependent relationships were with my partners, my romantic partners. So I'm a heterosexual woman. So they're always, there are always men. And when I did the relationship inventory in ACA, it was so clear. Oh, here's where it began. And it got worse and it got worse. And it got worse. So my last relationship before recovery was a five-year relationship. And I actually said to the man, let me see if I can heal some of those wounds. Mm. I have that kind of power. And then. um, At what point in the relationship? First date? No, like (laughs) a couple months. First couple months. So one of the things I said to him, (laughs) I started dating was I will never live with you unless we're married. Cause I had lived with like five guys before. And it was always because it was convenient, Mm -hmm. not because we wanted to move the relationship forward towards more intimacy. It was just like, well, we're both practically living together. It's, you know, it's a waste of money, blah, 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 blah. And so I was like, I'm not doing that. Cause I fucking love living alone and I'm not going to mess that up for something temporary. Right. So then, uh, 10 months into the relationship, I have gallbladder surgery and he doesn't even come to visit me Mm. at my home when I get out. So what do I do? I go to him and I stay at his place for a week for quote him to take care of me. Meanwhile, I rearrange his, uh, furniture because he had this office that he was calling you know, his daughter's bedroom, even though she never came there anymore. And meanwhile, his son was sleeping in the living room. So I rearranged it and made it into the son's bedroom. I'm recovering from abdominal surgery, by the way. And (laughs) after that week of recuperating at his home, I was like, oh my God, I love being with him so much. (laughs) I changed my mind and I want to move in with him. And um, so I did. He would say to me, for like three years, thank you so much for breaking your number one rule, which is another way of saying, thank you for violating your own damn boundaries. And let me tell you something. It took me, I remember precisely where I was. I was in my condo wiping down the kitchen table in probably 2015 or 16. So I was in recovery by then. And all of a sudden I went, Oh my God, that was a lie. I told people that I 
went to go stay with him so he could, could take, take care of me. I would totally have told people that too. But I was telling, I believed it, Andrea. I fucking believed it. I didn't know. And all of a sudden I'm wiping down my table. Oh, like, oh my God, that was a lie. I was lying to myself and I lied to other people. So basically what I said was, oh, this is codependent enough for me. I'm in, you know, and then I moved in with him and within like six weeks, we were in couples therapy and the, the therapist first session says to him something like, you know, when we were the victim t-shirt and I was like, dude, you don't fucking say to victims that they're victims because they feel victimized by that. Um, and he went to five of the six sessions that we signed up for and he wouldn't go to the last one. And when I went to the last one, the, the therapist was like, what is it that you want me to tell you that you already know? Um, and it just was not like it, it just what ended up happening was I ended up hating him and resenting the hell out of him because I went into a relationship like this. I have no needs. Mm. You don't have to meet any of my needs. Cause I actually don't have any, I'm here to meet your needs. And of course that is not sustainable. So then I resented the shit out of him mm. and then I treated him like crap. And then finally, and I had people saying like, you need to leave, you need to leave, you need to leave. And I had, rented out my condo and moved into a house with him that we rented together that was big enough for his children who were mostly grown by then to live in. So I knew like, if I'm leaving, I'm not just leaving him, his family has to move out of this house. And so I really felt like I needed to be 100% sure I needed to leave. And I finally, finally got it. And I remember I said to him, the way I told him was, remember how I used to be happy and I'm not now. (laughs) Yeah, I do. And I go, I'd like us to live separately. And I didn't mean break up. I just thought, I thought if I moved separately from him, I'd be able to like get back to myself. (laughs) What actually happened was I moved out and I was like, holy shit, I am never going back there again. And I just couldn't deal with it. I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And then let's see, probably seven or eight months later is when the whole Dan thing happened? Dan thing. Well, no, that I met Dan like probably four or five months later. And then the bottom thing happened like four or five months later after that, you know? So when you started doing this work, was there ever a point where you were like, I'm swearing off men forever? No. Okay. So what happened when I got into recovery, I was doing the steps with uh, three other women. One was, so I was 52. There was another 52 year old woman and two women that were like 60. So we were like, we're in, we're not fucking around because we have been living so long like this. We're not, but like one of them was married. One of them was in a relationship, but it was really shitty. And one of them had just broken off a relationship, but then all the other women we were in recovery with were like man hungry, got a date, got a date, got a date. And I was like, okay, you know, I'd like to date six months into my ACA recovery. I started a dating relationship, which was with a totally emotionally unavailable guy. Cause he only wanted to talk on the phone and he wanted to have phone sex. And I like tried to, okay. <laughs> and, but I actually it was funny when I started dating him, I thought I wasn't codependent anymore, which is hilarious. Of course you are. Yeah. And, um, so it, that didn't last for very long, thank goodness. But when that ended, which was only, it was maybe a six week period of time mm-hmm. when that ended was probably September, my birthday's in March. And I had said to myself, you know what? 
I think I'm going to wait to date until after my birthday. Well, by then, um, I had been in recovery even longer and I was like, you know, I think I'm good. I'm, I don't need to date right now. And then I started saying, I think I'll wait until I'm done with the 12 steps to date. But all these women around me were like, date, I need to date. I need to date. And I was like, mm, yeah, I don't, I don't think I need to date. And so then when I got done with the 12 steps, I was like, it's not that I don't want to date. I'm not going on an app or anything. I'm not seeking it out. I will date if it comes to that, but I'm not because I, first of all, I'm new. So like, I don't know who this person is and what she's going to be like dating, but also I'm really enjoying my life because I didn't know who I was before I was Miss Chameleon. You know, and so I was figuring out what I liked and what I didn't like. I was, you know, th this is where the boundaries come in. Like I was figuring out like the boundaries of Barb, like where do I end and other people mm -hmm. begin? And it was, mm -hmm. at, you know, I was in my fifties and it was like the first time that I started to understand. I like this. I actually don't like that. I like this. I'm not sure if I like this. And I was having such a good time and I felt so comfortable in my own skin that I was like, I'm not really missing anything, you know? So I didn't swear men off by any means, but I also, my seeker like got shut down, mm -hmm. you know, but not on purpose, you know? Yeah. And now you're in a lovely relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a super fantastic, amazing relationship. It's, it's incredible. Like I didn't even know this is possible. It's just really wonderful. And, and we're so happy he's in recovery. I'm in recovery. Um, and you know, the, the promise in the AA big book that says we will intuitively know how to handle situations we choose to baffle us. The place that comes that happens for me the most is in my relationship. Just shit comes out of my mouth. And I'm like, who is that? Oh my God, I know that. Who is Actually, that? Actually, can I tell you a TMI story? Please. Okay. So I told this in my meeting the other night and I said to people, this might be too much information for some of you. And I apologize, but it's my story and this I'm telling it. So he was over and we were going to make love and I had been farting. And I was like, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with you, you know, going down on me because I've been farting. So let's not do that. And he laughed. Right. And we had a wonderful evening. And the next morning he said something to me about it. We laughed again. We thought that was really funny. I said, you know, I'm, I've been thinking about this. What would I have done in the past before recovery? How would I have handled that? <laughs> what I would have done, I would have created a fight mm. between me and my partner because I didn't know how to directly communicate. I am uncomfortable with X, Y, Z. I could not do that. So instead of communicating directly, which I was not capable of, remember I told you about the family I grew up in? Yes. I would have been <laughs> uncomfortable, not wanted to make love because of that. And then, so I would have started a fight, which I would have blamed him for. Mm -hmm. Like that was the story of my life. Like I basically was constantly building a case against my partners for mm -hmm. why they didn't love me and constantly just putting brick after brick, after brick, after brick and walls, building a wall higher and fatter between me and my partner, mm -hmm. always like assuming this is not going to work out. Now this was not conscious. I look back now. I'm like, Oh my God, look at all That's these what you were doing. Yeah. You know, and I'm just not. And so 
now I say things like I'm uncomfortable with, you know, X, Y, Z, or, um, would you mind doing the, you know, doing this or can we go over here? Or I'm not really sure how to say this, but you know, it's just stuff just comes out of me. Cause I just tell the truth now. I just like, when I got in recovery, I thought I was honest. No, no, I wasn't. I was especially lying about people pleasing and food, but also all the other substances I did before. But I really believed I was honest, which is hilarious now. And now like honesty is like bottom line for me. Like, I'm just not lying. If I need to lie, then I'm leaving. You know, I don't know what, whatever the situation is, because I can't, I do still occasionally have the impulse to lie, but I don't do it. That should be your t-shirt. If I'm lying, I'm leaving. <laughs> so let's talk about boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for me, boundaries have been an incredible tool, excuse me, incredible gift of recovery. And they have turned into an incredible tool. What the hell is a boundary? So my belief of boundaries is that they are standards that I have for my life that um, I live by. And um, what most people think about the part about boundaries is that I communicate that to other people. There are some boundaries I have that I don't ever have to communicate with other people because they just affect me. Mm-hmm. But when we think about boundaries with other people, it's us communicating to other people. This is okay with me. This is not okay with me. And, you know, I would say that forming boundaries was absolutely integral into to my recovery in ACA. And I, I, there was a couple of guys I know from ACA who are longtime ACA and AA guys. And both of them said this to me separately in slightly different ways, but they both said something like this. In AA, it doesn't say in the steps, stop drinking, but you cannot recover without stopping drinking. In ACA, it doesn't say in the steps, form healthy boundaries, but you cannot recover without forming healthy boundaries. And I think that's mm-hmm. the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, promise number one in ACA is we will discover our real identity. Well, what that means is you will get boundaries. You will determine the boundaries of who you are and where you end and other people begin. And so when I think about, like, people would ask me, like, how the hell did you go from having no boundaries to having boundaries? And when I thought about it, I think for me, the absolute core of me being able to form healthy boundaries and sustain them was that I grew to care more what I think of me than what other people think of me. Now, this doesn't mean I don't care at all what other people think of me. Of course I do. I'm not a covered people pleaser. Also, I'm a human. I care about other people. I love people, right? It means that I used to care so much more what other people thought about me that I just threw my own feelings about me under the bus. I threw my integrity out the window. I lied and said I liked things I didn't like, I said that I, things were okay with me that were not okay. I said, I didn't like things that I did like, because I was afraid that people would think that there was something wrong with me that I liked those things. And now as an honest woman of integrity, I'm not willing to do that anymore. I care more about my honesty, my integrity than I do that you will like me. I want you to like me, but I don't like need you to like me the way that I used to, because guess what? I like me. And part of the reason I like me is one, I tell the truth. So I'm living in my integrity. I'm whole. 
And another part is that I actually take care of myself and I know who I am. Mm-hmm. And all of that to me, really the process of forming boundaries got me to know who I am. It got me to show up for myself. It got me to build trust with myself because I did not trust myself. And I especially didn't trust myself to pick partners. When I heard your episode on the broken picker syndrome, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she's calling it that. Because I used to say to people, the only part of my dysfunctional relationships that I was willing to own was I acted like I had a broken picker. And the way I acted was like, it was like this lever that was broken, right? Well, I'm the picker and it's not like it's just the picker that was broken. It was like, I picked them bad, but then I held on to them bad too. It's not like I just picked them bad. We're not just the claw. We're the whole damn machine. Right. right. (laughs) And so I, you know, my, I'm my picker and I'm healed Mm -hmm. and I'm whole. And so one of the reasons, not one of the reason my, my podcast is called fragmented to whole life lessons from 12 step recovery is that when I look back at my life before recovery, I sort of felt like I was a bunch of fragmented pieces sort of floating around in space with space between them. So other people's shit could like penetrate into me. And recovery was the integration of those into one coherent whole and also the getting rid of the pieces that weren't authentically me. And so the way that I think of it now is that like, I can be rocked by things that happen to me, but I cannot be shattered by them any longer because I'm whole. So shitty things still happen to me all the time. Not, not anywhere near as frequently as they used to, because I've stopped most of my drama, you know, but they don't take away from my wholeness. Whereas before it was like, I was just these shattered pieces and I was constantly like in movement. I was in, I, you know, I had a sense of urgency at all times. I was a reactor rather than an actor. And now like I'm whole, I live from a place of wholeness. Mm-hmm. and things happen to me, but I know that I'm going to get through it. Like literally nothing is ever going to be as bad as it ever was. It's just not. So a few things you talk about like the prom- the first promise, like becoming our authentic self, mm-hmm. what comes first, our authentic self and then boundaries or boundaries. And then our authentic self. No, you, you, you figure out who your authentic self is when you start to set boundaries, because setting boundaries is involves experimentation. If you don't know what you like and don't like, how would you know where to set the boundary? Right. If you don't know who you are, you, you, so you, you make educated guesses, you know, like I know for me, I don't remember what it was, but the first time I remember setting a boundary, I was like, wham, ooh, that was way too harsh. Now, if I had known it was going to be too harsh, then I wouldn't have done it, right? But I only knew that it was too harsh once I said it and I felt what it felt like. So I was like, okay, I need to back off a little bit next time. So that's what I mean when I say there's this like this experiment. Yeah, trial and error. Right. And so you start to like, I, I realized, um, I don't like football, right. So I'm not going to be watching football anymore. I realized, um, you know, my family told me rock and roll is real music. Other music is shit. And it's not that I don't like rock and roll, but I didn't even allow myself to listen to other genres of music. (laughs) I judged it. 
And one day after a couple years in recovery, I was driving down the road and I heard Hotel California for the 750 gajillionth time. Great song, but not when you hear it so much. And I was like, I, I snapped. I'm like, I'm done. And I just hit the scan button. And I said, you know what? I don't care what genre it is. I don't care what the artist is, the album, what year it's from, what station it's on. Either I like it or I don't like it. And it turns out I like pop music. I like dance music. I like indie rock, right? But I didn't know that. I had to experiment and figure out Barb is a person who likes these kinds of music. And so my real identity is somebody who likes multiple kinds of music, but I didn't understand that until I did some experimentation. So when I was a little girl, and I think this obviously shows that I was emotionally disturbed. Anytime I would hear Hotel California, I would have to plug my ears when it said you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. That scared the fucking shit yeah, out of me. It's pretty scary. It is pretty scary. Yeah, that was, yeah. that was really scary. Um, one thing that I hear, you know, when we talk in my Patreon groups, when we talk about like boundaries and stuff, and one thing is like, how do I even know, how do I even know what my needs are? You know, how do I specifically with romantic relationships, it's, you know, I'll hear people say, I want to set boundaries, but I don't even know what my needs are. Yeah. I mean, I think you can only do it through experimentation, you Mm -hmm. know, like you can guess you have an idea. What are your wants? Start with that. You know, like I want somebody who likes me, for example, you know, like I've dated people who didn't even really like me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> no, I mean, like, why the fuck are you dating me if you don't like me? Right. But I, I put up with that. Right. So that seems Crumbs. but Crumbs. I needed to tell myself that, oh, I think I want to date somebody who likes me. <laughs> like, let's start with just basic things like that. Or at you like talk to people. If you know people in healthy relationships, you know, maybe you don't, I know I didn't. Or if I did, I was like, they're weirdos, you know, but I talk to people in healthy relationships and ask them what makes you feel loved? Mm. What makes you feel seen? What makes you feel heard mm-hmm. and see what they say and see what resonates with you or talk to your friends and ask them, like, what do you think makes me feel seen? When have you seen me feel seen and heard? You know, because we want to be fully present in our relationships, not hiding. I was hiding in every relationship. Doesn't work, by the way, you know? Yeah. I think we have to drink and smoke and gamble and all that shit. All that crap. I think another issue that adult children have is we may set boundaries, but then we don't follow through with them. Right. Yeah. So, can you have an example? Do you have an example in your life where you set a boundary? it was um, violated and then you acted in accordance with the boundary that you had set instead of just letting them walk all over you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that is the part of boundaries right there that everybody has a problem with. Cause if you could just set a boundary and people honored it, then you'd be fine and you wouldn't have any difficulty and I wouldn't need to be a boundaries coach. Right. Yeah. And as adult children, we're probably setting boundaries with (laughs) clearly a lot of fucked up people who probably aren't going to follow our boundaries. But but probably as children, we're not setting boundaries because we don't even know they exist. No, I mean, I said as adult children. Oh, adult children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the reason that people don't honor your boundaries, there's there's a myriad of reasons, but for most people, it's not because they're dicks. It's because they don't believe you because you never did it before. 
and it's a new version of you. So just like normally just repeating the boundary for most situations, that's enough, right? Um, But depending on how egregious the violation is, then you just sort of have to jack it up. You have to have some kind of consequences. Most of the time, the consequences are, I just repeat what I say. Like, I asked you not to put that there. Please don't put that there. I asked you not to put that there. Please Uh don't put that there, right? But then the next step is, what is the consequence if they keep putting that there? You have to do, something has to change. If nothing changes, nothing changes. You have to do something. Mm-hmm. And the thing about boundaries is, especially like people that come to me in the beginning, what they want is they want to set a boundary because they want to control other people. That's well, that was going to be my next question is yeah. how does one distinguish between a boundary and trying to control? Yeah. So boundaries are for you. They're yours and they're for you to manage. So if somebody's not honoring your boundary, that's on you. You have, you can't make somebody be someone, turn someone in who, who honors your boundary. So like, I'll give my brother as an example. He's a super loud person, screams really loud when he talks. It's just really loud. And I, one of my friends in recovery said to me, you know, Barb, people who feel heard don't need to yell. And I was like, oh my God, that's an excellent point. Mm. So when I got into recovery, I realized, oh wait, I don't actually have to put up with him yelling and screaming. I didn't know that. So I would say, listen, um, I hear you. It hurts my ears when you're so loud. And for like a half a sentence, he would be quieter and then he would go back to yelling. And I kept trying to get him to not yell. And he's incapable of not yelling. Right. So I can set that boundary all day long. He is not capable of honoring it. So what do I have to do? I have to make an adjustment. Either I put up with his yelling or I adjust in some way. So the way I adjusted was I spend very little time with him. And I also make the time that I spend with him farther and fewer between. Mm -hmm. Because I, he's very triggering for me. It is extremely difficult for me to maintain my healthy boundaries and my, I'll call it decorum around him because, you know, people in our families push our buttons because they installed them. Right. Mm -hmm. So I can't turn my brother into somebody who doesn't yell. Yeah. So I was trying to control him with my boundary. And when I finally got the message, like I can't control him, it's my boundary. What am I going to do about it? So what I'm going to do is spend no more than 60 minutes with him at a time. And I'm going to do it very infrequently. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So let's say, for example, we had somebody who either, let's say their partner is an active alcoholic, or maybe their parent is, what would be an example of a boundary? And what would be an example of trying to control someone? Um, I'm not going to spend time with you when you're drunk. I'm not going to pick you up when you're drunk. I'm not going to clean up your shit when you're drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, those are boundaries. Mm-hmm. Trying to control um, pouring their shit down the drain, um, shaming them. Um, I mean, there's, I mean, I haven't had to do that in so long. I can't believe I can't think of, of things just trying to make them stop drinking. You can't or, yeah, make or people saying, stop yeah. drinking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Mm. Boundaries. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, it is, but it really does. I mean, I've noticed it so much with my family, you know, so fucking hard in the beginning and now it does, it still can be at times, but it comes more a lot. It's a lot more, you know, Mm -hmm. second, I think the other thing too, that's important. It just came to me. I think another way like boundary versus controlling, I think that some, when we set boundaries, we need to be clear and we don't need to be like over explaining things. And I think that when we're providing like so much explanation for our boundaries in a sense, that's a way of controlling. Yeah. I think because what we're trying to do is convince them that it's okay for us to have the boundary and ultimately we're trying to convince ourselves. And the way that I, the way that I talk about my clients with that is don't give them more opportunities to engage with you. The fewer Mm -hmm. words, the better. And also Mm -hmm. what I thought you were going to say is boundaries are clear, not murky because we like to beat around the bush. Oh yeah. We hint at things. Don't fucking hint at things. Direct communication is required. Don't do that. That's a boundary. Would you mind if you, you know, I would really like it if you really, if you just would stop doing that. Like, no, you say, please don't do that. There's no reason to be rude. I mean, if, if you ask somebody a bunch of times or if they're like inebriated or they won't take no for an answer or something like that, then it's fine. Go ahead and be rude. Right. But for most of the time, be polite. Please don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember when I first started working with my therapist and like communications with my parents, I would have like fucking three paragraphs and we'd get down to two sentences. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Because we're trying to just, I mean, at least for me, I was trying to justify to myself why it was okay that I set that boundary. Yes. Yeah. yeah and control their reaction to our boundary. Right. Yeah. And, but the thing is, the more you say to them, the more opportunities they have to pick your stuff apart, your, your exactly. apart. But if you exactly. say, please don't do that, they might go, why? Because I asked you not to. Asked and answered. That. That's the one thing I've learned from watching all the try the objection, ask and answered. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what do you want to plug? Um, I want to plug my podcast, which is called mm-hmm. Fragmented the Whole Life Lessons from 12 Step Recovery. There are 10 to 20 minute episodes of me sharing my experience, strength, and hope. I started having guests every 10 episodes on episode 100, and actually Andrew was my last guest. So those are a little longer. And then I also do boundaries coaching. So my website is higherpowercc.com. I've got all kinds of free shit on there. I have like 18 episodes of my podcast specifically about boundaries. Mm. Um, and then I'd also love if people followed me on Instagram on higher power coaching, I put all kinds of free shit on there too, about boundaries. Well, we need as much help as we can on boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. I I have a dream that all 8 billion people in this world will be differentiated, individuated humans. (laughs) Yes. Fingers crossed. Yes. We'll start one at a time, one at a time, baby. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad that our paths crossed. Yeah, me too. I appreciate it. I really appreciate your podcast. Oh, by the way, my friend Tracy yesterday was like, tell her how much I love her. I listened to her episode on fear. It was amazing. She is so thrilled with this podcast. Everybody Hi, that Tracy. I see, everybody I refer to is just mm-hmm. so over the moon about your podcast. So am I. I mean, I cannot say enough good things about it. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You're healing the world. I'm trying. well thank you you're welcome 
Well, that wraps up today's episode of Adult Child. You are so welcome, and thank you to Barb. That was excellent. Can you guys let me know if the sound sounds shitty? Oh, God. I'm in a new closet now. I'm in a new closet. I'm actually back on the floor. You know, I was up, I I set up my little standing work desk in this new closet, but I'm thinking that it actually sounds like a little bit less echoey when I'm when I'm sitting on the floor. So let me know. I really take pride in, in my sound sounding good. Um, what else? Yes, next week, money. Don't let me back out. Um, I will be posting in Patreon a link to the to the workshop in the next few days. And then as I said, it'll be available to everybody else um next week. And that is all. So please join the Patreon. Please give me a review. Please hit a girl up. I'd love to hear from you guys. Andrea at adultchildpodcast.com or send me a DM on Instagram. And I will see you shit shows next week for another. Well, actually, I'll see you on Saturday for shit show Saturday. So I'll see you shit shows then for another amazing episode of Adult Child. It's going to be super awesome, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie. I promise.